welcome to Visions of the Evo Grid. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this evening I have the pleasure of talking with Natasha Vita Moore. Natasha, you recently started uh, communicating through the Biota Conversation, so I think you're probably the best person to give an introduction to your work. For people not familiar with your work, would you would you like to give an introduction? Uh, certainly. My uh, background for many years has been in uh, media arts design and uh, a theoretical approach to the future, uh, both as a futurist and artist and um, designer. I take a look at where the future is headed from the perspective of human enhancement technologies and uh, bridging on human enhancement aesthetics, which is my particular area of interest uh, the past few years and I assume will become even more interesting to me as um, we take a look at all the different emerging and converging life forms as they come about. I um, am currently working on my PhD at the Planetary Collegium at the University of Plymouth, and I lecture in universities in Europe and South America and sometimes in the United States, but not often enough. Um, I designed Primo Posthuman in 1997, which is a future human body and mind-brain prototype um, from a graphical sense. I had a, a very strong scientific team working with me, uh, combined with artificial intelligence of Marvin Minsky, AGI of Ben Gritzel and Peter Voss, nanotechnology of Robert Friedis, uh, philosophy of Max Moore, um, various biologists, scientists um, within um, cell biology um, and evolutionary biology, Mike Rose, Mike West, etc. Uh, the point was that I wanted this design to not only to be a visionary idea of a transdisciplinary approach, but also to have some scientific reliability in thinking and probability of what would possibly come about in the future combining certain technologies. I think the most appropriate acronym to use in this regard is NBIC plus, and NBIC, most of your listeners will know, is NanoBioInfoCogno, uh, Technologies and Sciences. I add the plus because I think robotics is very important, and I think artificial life is also very important to this. Terrific, terrific. So it sounds like you've been really interested in artificial life for a long period of time. Can you can you kind of distill when you first got interested in artificial life and what really excited you about the field? Yes, I can, and I remember it exactly. And before um, uh, our conversation um, in, in this uh, interview, I reflected on a number of years ago. It was in the, I think it was 1993 or 1994, I went to a project in Los Angeles called um, Digital Hollywood. And it uh, was put on by a very smart group of uh, individuals in Los Angeles who were in the entertainment community as well as in the design and, and writing community. There was one piece of work there that really just spinned my mind and, and just uh, caused me to uh, develop all sorts of ideas about possibilities. And this one project was called Evolve, A-V-O-L-V-E. And it was created by, uh, actually, a colleague of mine who actually was um, at the Planetary Collegium um, for PhD work, where I currently am, Christine, Krista Samara, and her partner, Laurent, and I, I, forgive me, I don't speak French well enough, and I will mispronounce the name, but it starts with an M-I-G, Meganuro Rule. Anyway, the, the piece was called Evolve, 
And it was the first A-Life work I had ever seen, and it was mesmerizingly beautiful. Uh, symbolic shapes uh, that would converge and merge, and um, one would eat the other and transform into a new shape, or they would mate and create new shapes, or one would kill off another shape. And it was just absolutely beautiful. Are you familiar with this piece, Tom? Um, in terms of its time period, um, what were the dates specifically? I, it was in Digital Hollywood uh, in 1993. Okay. Okay. 1993-1994. It was just absolute beautiful piece. Right. And that, that was my first uh, experience with artificial life. And then, of course, I, I was very uh, interested in Carl Sims' work, which was tremendously inspirational. And I started looking at um, the organic shapes artificial life was taking on and looking at um, organic shapes and plant life and whatnot. Certainly, certainly. And you've recently started corresponding through the Biota Conversations, but did you have a sense of the Biota community prior to your recent interaction? Yes, I had to a degree, but quite honestly, not to a large degree. And I wish I had had earlier because I find it a, a, a very important and um, enthusiastic nexus of thinkers and doers. Um, I'd heard about it through a conference I was at in Vienna, Austria, a year and a half ago, where a couple of the presenters had mentioned it with a link to the website, and I looked at it then, and I thought, this is quite interesting. And because my area is in human evolution and design, I was um, delighted to see that on the website there are some interesting images um, which I keep actually <laughs> up on my desktop right now, which is <laughs> kind of um, synchronistic, I suppose. But yes, I heard about it in the Vienna conference, and then I think it was, gosh, six months ago, I applied to be on the list, and I've been listening to the posts and following it a bit. And it's not my particular area of expertise, but I am a transdisciplinary scholar, so it's very important for me to know what other thinkers, engineers, designers, scientists, Etc. are doing with uh, creating, working in areas of life and creation. Certainly, certainly. And I think, I mean, through, through movements like uh, postbiota.org and um, Project Lifeboat and uh, a wide variety of groups, I've tried to introduce these folk into the biota community too, to, you know, bring exactly what you're saying, bring um, these kind of thinkers in to, to be part of the discourses you've observed over the past six months. So in terms of the Evo grid, the, the purpose of our, our conversation in some regard this evening, when did you first hear about the Evo grid and what was your sense then of the possibilities of this project? Well, I first heard about it on the email list and I was just sitting back actually reading them because uh, the idea of it actually, you know, Evo grid. I mean, what does that mean? Evo, evolve grid. Are we on a grid? What is what? Is, what does this mean? So basically, I just was more curious about what it meant than anything. Um, but I think you could probably expand on that, obviously, <laughs> more articulately than than I could. But I, I found it very interesting to consider way, the way different types of thinkers are thinking about life in different um, evolutionary ways and what ways different technologies will be um, will become an expose of material or media, let's call it, for looking at life forms and um, building life forms. So um, we're talking about complexity here. Very much so, very much so. So I guess from where you had come from, 
to kind of try to, to distill what you're saying, the Evo grid just basically had limitless potential as you first heard about it. But as you followed through the list, as you saw the discussion, I mean, as, as you're familiar, it's really split into two quite separate uh, tracks. One, connecting with a wide variety of historical ideas that have been going through the bias community since the, to the late 90s. And the other, what Bruce Damer is, is currently running with in terms of the origins of life through chemistry simulation or perhaps something even more abstract than that. I mean, from your background, I mean, particularly the ideas of extending life expectancy, I mean, looking at contemporary biological limitations, which we may be able to change into the future. Of these two projects as they emerge, I mean, obviously, there are a number of ideas that kind of link with, with your background, too. Yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, and and that's what that's what I, I like the most about the Evo grid and, and the the email list and the different discussions and, and projects is that we're all within a certain network of thinking and we're pretty much using the same tools. Um, some more refined than others, but they're all interconnected. So if one group of thinkers is coming up with a concept, a theory, um, it will have some effect upon another group of thinkers and their theories. And rather like in the... Um, in the modern world or in the uh, different eras of civilization and um, philosophy and scientific knowledge and evidence, it has been that one group would oppose another group and ideas were sequestered to a particular group and biases were very uh, prevalent. And then there came a time where there was a, a cross-fertilization of ideas to find some similarities. Well, it's interesting to me to be around during this particular time in knowledge thinking and, and knowledge development is that the idea of biology going into all the different domains as a type of metaphor is very important, especially when we're looking at my area, which is you know, radical life extension, and looking at the area of building new life forms and looking at evolution. So I think that it's a really rich time to bring up projects that could alter perceptions and alter historically the way we have looked at knowledge and information as it's been presented to us fairly linearly, linear, on a linear basis. Excuse me. Um, again, knowledge sequestered with um, terminology that wasn't shared to cross-breeding or cross-fertilizing that technology, um, technological information. And now reaching beyond that, I don't think postmodernism has helped in any regard. I think it it became too um, too limited, even if it, in its scope, in in um, deconstructing the the period of modernism before it. So I look at this time of complexity being the uh, a whole new rich uh, area of of not, not. I don't want to call it enlightenment. I want to call it knowledge and um, you know, seeking and learning and, and sharing and engaging in, this, in, in a sense of complexity. Uh, without the chaos element, I, I, I know that chaos is very important for evolution, um, evolution in, regardless of what type of system it is, but I don't think chaos needs to be something that's you know, extremely or primarily destructive. I think there can be confusion rather than chaos, let's say it that way. 
So I think that, that some of the, the, the good confusion that we're going to have in discussing um, evolution and where we are and where we're going and where we've been and, and a, no, a new perspective on it will, be, um, will create a lot of uh, confusion and wonderful confusion in developing new knowledge. So to frame the discussion with regards to the, the um, knowledge that you have associated with radical life extension... I mean, for folks listening in, you know, a wide group of people, wide variety of reading lists. I mean, Aubrey de Grey et al. have, have touched on um, a number of folks who listen to these podcasts. But if you were to give your own particular recipe for radical life extension, where do you see it going? It's interesting. I, I just put up today on my website um, a graph that I created several years ago that I presented in Milan, Italy at a conference where I was talking about the, um, the evolution of self and multiple identities or multiple selves and multiple environments. Where I see the human going, as I described in a human tree of the future human self through art, sciences, and technology, basically you know, engineering design, is start, uh, started with the, uh, the beta human through human uh, now, this is old terminology. This chart was done several years ago, so I'm just calling it human 1.0, then human 1.5, human 2.0, and human 3.0. I think this terminology is a bit antiquated um, and almost too 20th century silly, but uh, it does get the point across. So as we've gone from survival reproduction into language and symbol and creating um, sciences and technologies uh, and society and and going into developing a sense of identity where the the individual was recognized self rather than uh, being part of a tribe or herd, the individual um, began seeing him or herself as the center of the universe, to looking at uh, the new technologies coming in, the hardware and the software and then the biotech and the cybernetics and um, the human merging with the technology and what was called a cyborg um, coming to fruition, the half-man, half-machine concept of metal, shiny metal, and, and awkward, lacking self, and, and being kind of a, a robot, to where that went into more of a moist media concept, and the paralleling that with the concept of the transhuman, which is actually a transitional stage of human, which the cyborg doesn't really belong to unless you're in academia. In, ac in academia, the term cyborg is used frequently um, at the omission of the word transhuman, but it's really the transhuman, I believe, that is the important term to use here because the transhuman reflects a human in transition. The cyborg, I see it as a dead end. So taking the human in transition from the human um, with the goal of transformation, the human would go through regenerative existence in becoming... Um, uh, more aware, more knowledgeable, um, greater sensory abilities, greater perceptions, um, cognitive enhancement. And with that, why do that unless you're going to extend life and health? It's not just the extension of life that's important. It's the extension of vitality, healthfulness, and well-being uh, physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, and intellectually. So that's, that's, the, that's the, the area right there of regenerative existence, um, taking what we've got and keeping it healthy and in a state of well-being as we're adding to it with artificial life, with um, uh, artificial general intelligence, with nanorobotics, 
uh, nanomedicine, et cetera. So that's where the major transition goes on in creating what would be a post-human um, entity, which would be uh, it, the posthuman genealogy would stem from human in that particular strain of, of, of hierarchy there and branching out exponentially. Uh, another area could go into the uh, superintelligent machine, which would be have some human components and develop a human point three, which would become more of an upload or the um, whole brain emulation. So um, that would go into not a collective from the perspective of Arthur C. Clarke, where you, you know, a childhood end. I don't see that vision at all. I, I find it a very dismal, dystopic uh, vision, but I think more of this immersive, interactive type of fluid sense of, of being in more than one place at the same time, where you could be in real time in a biological or semi-biological body if, if you choose, but also be able to coexist in virtual habitats and synthetic or a silicon um, forms, let's call it, for lack of a better word. So where I differ from Aubrey de Grey and some other life extensionists is that I see that the personal identity and the continuation of the personal self is very important, but with the caveat that having oneself, one sense of identity, will become a early 21st century notion dating back from the Enlightenment forward that we will take on many selves or many identities and um, be able to develop them. Not to a point where there's confusion, like um, where you would go into some uh, mental uh, situations that would be uh, cause schizophrenia or psychotic episodes where uh, there's a disconnect between the different elements of one's personality. Uh, the personality would, would fuse, of course, but one would be able to be um, to represent him or herself or itself in various environments through various activities and various behaviors. So I hope that explains it, that I'm not just looking at the human evolution of the human in a biological form, um, dealing with the mitochondria and uh, re, uh, regenerating the body, to, the body and prolonging life in the human form. I'm looking at prolonging life in the human evolution from being in a human state to a transhuman transitional state to transforming into other types of states and coexistences. So it's a very human-centric model, though, isn't it? I mean, the potential uh, for a wide variety of systems intelligence to grow at a far faster rate and almost uh, remove the need for humans to be in the picture is certainly part of a kind of dark future or maybe even dark present uh, narrative that a lot of folks in the um, you know, broader science fiction and even a small number in the biota community have turned to. How do we steer ourselves through the emerging technologies in such a way that we don't actually lose humanity through the process? Well, let's back up a little bit. The first thing you said, it's... Um, I, I can't remember exactly your terminology, but... I think you said anti-human? Well, my sense with regards to a wide variety of systems is that there is both a parasitic um, and also uh, a mutually compatible mutual benefit uh, possibility. But then there are situations, as we've seen, you know, even in terms of civilizations, human against human, where um, as one group strengthens, 
it doesn't necessarily need to bring the other one along for the ride. And certainly, um, you know, a candid observation of uh, contemporary technology is that the humans are really uh, an exterior factor in order to uh, do basic maintenance, but don't hold the value of the system uh, itself. I think yeah. through the biotech conversations, you may not have, have um, observed some of the discussion, but uh, there's certainly a movement within the biotech community, which is in many regards post singularity um, in this analysis with the view that when you study these systems uh, there is no you know there is no linking back to humanity in a kind of romantic sense there is just pure survival and this is in fact far removed from uh, the notion that the human is anything other than the you know the first thing that lit the match or started the division or what have you in terms of the system's ability to carry on it doesn't you know it doesn't require um, that the humans are kind of surfing the wave, the humans can actually be knocked oh, yes. out under the okay, wave well, as well. I, I, I personally think that that viewpoint is tremendously flawed. I think that when, when approached from that perspective, and it's often approached from that perspective, I was just debating someone on, a, on the IEET and the Sentient Developments blog on this very issue of this type of um, anti-human future. Well, I oppose that with, with great passion. I'm a human. I love my humanity. I love my body. I like my... Uh, not, I love my perceptions. I, I love life. I love being alive. That being a given, how could I ever turn on my humanness? That's not the point. The point is to save the humanness, to save the humaneness of the human uh, and preserve that. I don't know if sustainability is, is the correct, correct term because that's a sense of stasis, but it's to enrich it, to improve the human condition, not to destroy the human condition. And perhaps that's the... That's the issue right there. The assumption is if one is a, wants to live longer and um, integrate with human enhancement technologies, the NIMBIC, the NanobioInfoCogno Plus scenario uh, that I described, that one dismisses, is annoyed with, or looks in with disdain upon the human as a less than capable species, like the um, embarrassment for intelligence, well, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. And I, you know, if, if someone does have that view, or if that view is written, it's either in science fiction by a fiction writer, or it's someone who is psychologically unhealthy and not and not happy with him or herself, um, regardless of of what particular school of thought he or she subscribes to. The transhumanist is extreme in valuing humaneness of the human. The whole point of engaging in radical life extension is to respect life and the humanness of being alive. Now, the only way that we can preserve the human and life, personal identity, is through extending life. Now, here is a, here is a sharp corner to turn. Most people in the world uh, have a religious or spiritual belief. And that is contingent upon an afterlife or an underworld or an overworld or some other reality that the spirit or the soul or the entity goes to. 
for eternity for the most part. Some religions do not have an eternity. Uh, some have reincarnation. Some have uh, nothing. But it's death is is welcomed. It's um, it's honored in in some in some ways. Well, not everyone believes that, and it doesn't mean that one is necessarily agnostic or atheistic or um, um, disrespectful of religious lore or mythology or anything doing with spirituality and metaphysics. It has to do with the fact that the issue of life and being alive and having personal existence is, uh, even though it's you can get into cognitive and neuroscience and all these elements around that to go, well, what is life and who are you and what is will and that's not where I'm going with this. Where I'm going with this, I'm just trying to stay really clean on this topic that the issue of life and extending life, not dying or not giving into the uh, death salvo knocking at the door, is I think an honorable attribute of being human. Um, from the get-go, humans will do whatever it takes to stay alive. We'll protect our mothers. Will protect their young like bears at the cave door. Um, if someone's um, in the street, um, bloody, we will go wrap that person up and call 911 as quickly as possible. Uh, we salute people who have died in action. We have hospitals that will, emergency rooms filled with people at their last breath trying to stay alive. In fact, the definition of death has changed over the years uh, in great degrees from holding up a candle to someone's nose to see if the flicker would die out, and if it died, pronouncing the person dead, and often burying a person alive because the person was in a, a state of comatosis or uh, low, low blood pressure and slow, low breathing that was not detected easily to testing the heart or testing these things. Now we have different ways we can test the cognitive processes of the the, neuro, um, the neocortex to see if there's any activity going on. But the point there is that the definition of death is changing, and it will continue changing as we keep on trying to stay alive. Our species is about survival. So it makes sense to me that humans, uh, in their with their enormous dignity, would do what whatever, not whatever, meaning hurting anyone, whatever it takes, but do whatever within reasonable um, capability to stay alive and to help keep our species alive and people we love, our families, our, our children, our friends, you know, even people we don't know, we will do what it takes to stay alive. Now, with that as a behavioral trait of the human, it makes sense to me that that behavioral trait is really important to us and probably one of our most important traits. So it's uh, my view of radical life extension is stems from a respect of that behavior of our, our animal species. So it's not anti-human at all. That was a, a long way around the corner. But that corner is very sharp, and sometimes you have to go around it delicately uh, because there's such aggression towards um, radical life extension and merging with machines as giving up one's humaneness. Uh, to the contrary, it's enabling and helping and preserving that humaneness in, in difference to respect of our will to live. Are you familiar with Justin Lyons' work at all with regards to um, simulating medical care and things like that? No. It, it's fascinating. He was on um, a year or so ago 
He now spends most of his time in Iraq, actually, setting up universities. He's a, a fascinating fellow. But when he was on, he talked about um, simulating the American healthcare system with artificial life in order to actually improve it dramatically. And what interests me with regards to the kind of contemporary situation, particularly in the U.S., is a number of the principles which you said as, as kind of axioms in terms of, um, you know, the way individuals may act with other individuals isn't actively represented in, in the healthcare system that exists in the U.S. And I think what interests me with regards to kind of moving from where we are currently to the future that is, is described by people such as yourself and, and also Aubrey de Grey, there needs to be some kind of resolution associated with where we are in a kind of contemporary standing in terms of for-profit healthcare. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. There are cancer patients now on the street because the hospitals here have closed. They can't afford to run them. I don't think the uh, moral burden is necessarily on the doctors with regards to putting these patients out on the street or back in their homes in order to, you know, die a relatively painful and horrible death. But that's the nature of the kind of contemporary American healthcare and also the current financial situation. Moving from where we are currently, how do you see these things moving forward into the future to your particular vision? Boy, it's going to be a rough, rough, hot, dry, rocky hill to climb getting over this, this situation. I was thinking about it today, as a matter of fact, just this morning, thinking about uh, on the news, it was talking about um, President Obama wanting to um, cut out Medicare and, and Medicaid and, and invest money in, in some alternative uh, possibilities. I don't know. It's just, it's so, this is where we, with our, intellectual acumen as humans don't have um, a vigorous enough, a vigorous enough um, thinking strategic protocol to deal with these issues. We, it's, it's almost like it's, it's too complex. The bottom line is, though, that in order for the health care to stay alive in this country, it's been built on the dollar bill of you getting insurance, and the way it's gone out of control is by people cheating the insurance and the insurance cheating the system. And uh, it's one sheet after another after another. I uh, was a paralegal for a number of years, and I worked a lot of my cases and my depositions dealt with um, claims, um, personal injury. And I would say that seven-fifths of them, let's see, now let's say, I'd say 70% or more were fraudulent. So it's, it is unfortunate that that goes on, but it does. We've seen big businesses crumble the past years from um, fraudulent and, and unprofessional and, and just Machiavellian behavior within corporations. And, and even in the, the uh, public sector, we've seen lots of, of problems and um, mistreatment of truth by even with journalists and reporting we've seen reporting become something of an alarmist nature with histrionics exaggerating one story to the next to the next but the bottom line here is we have a problem with health care but it's not just in the united states i'm not a statist i i think of myself as a, a planetary or global citizen um so i i don't have a, a strong uh, affinity with the united states because it doesn't think like I think in a lot of ways. But I live here and I have insurance, and that's important to me. So in this country, you have to have insurance. That's, that's the bottom line. 
if you don't have insurance, you have to get a job so you will be insured. And a lot of the people who uh, end up in the emergency room who don't have insurance uh, don't have jobs, and that's very sad. Now, we have a big problem with mental illness and a lot of people on the streets for that. So that's just one area, just one small area. But even the people who do have insurance, the cost of the medical care is exorbitantly high. We can't get doctors for free. They went to school. They paid lots of of money in tuition, just like any PhD pays, um, and even more so to to set up their practice to do what they love to do. And it's not their fault that the cost of of drugs and and medical facilities and hospitals has gone up so so enormously all the way. So it's one, one area feeds the other. Anyway, the bottom line here is doctors need to be paid, hospitals need to be paid. So how do we do that if no one wants to pay for their own medical care? Well, um, socialist medicine, I think that that is a very bad choice. I think there must be a third option. I don't think it should just be a capitalistic state of of, um, medicine or a, a social state of medicine. I think there's another alternative that no one's wrapping their head around. When I hear stories from England and other countries where the medicine is more socialized and that people wait three months to have surgery and die before they can have their surgery, I think that's appalling. So, yes, we could have health care where everyone gets health care and those who can afford uh, another type of health care can have that too, but we had HMOs and those were not successful. I remember I got HMO when I was living in Los Angeles very inexpensively, and um, it, was, it was not posh, for, to be sure, um, but I got good care. Uh, that was fine. The only way we can get around this situation is to altering our biology and to not be such biological um, beings so that when we get tuned up, it's not going to be so expensive with our biology. I mean... You could say, oh, well, when we, we will have viruses that are, you know, computer viruses in our body, that's true, too. So there's no way of getting around it other than trying to be healthy, and then that boils down to the responsibility of the person to be healthy for him or herself. Um, look, in the United States, yes, we have a health care problem, but how much of a problem is the obesity in this country? went to the movies last night, and I had to count the thin people. It was horrible. My my point was more, I mean, when you talk about the morality of individuals with regards to the extension of life and with regards to helping and nurturing and making sure that people survive, and then in contrast, you look to the applied reality, I don't think you can use uh, a morality claim against, as you have agreed and acknowledged, against contemporary doctors who exist irrespective of their, you know, whilst they have, may, may have the abilities to um, do their doctoring without money, I don't think the financial component necessarily negates uh, their morality as, as humans. We've moved in a variety of directions. All I can say at this point is really that um, you're more than welcome to participate in things like Biota Live and other you know, means that the community brings people together because I know a number of participants in Biota Live would, would dearly like to have the kind of uh, dialogue that we've had uh, this evening. So just as a, a kind of final question for you, what more would you like to see from the artificial life and the biota communities? I would like to see a more exchange about the individuals in the community thinking about their own life. <laughs> I know that that's, that may be a... a 
uh, a tall order, and it may be something that you find not associated at all, but I do, because if we look at it this way, if the individuals, the scholars, the, the very interesting thinkers that you have in this community, and there are a lot of them, and I'm delighted to be a part of it, but why not discuss the values that we have about our own life and our own evolution as as humans as we're creating other life forms? And um, also, another area that I would like to see developed is the aesthetics of artificial life. And aesthetics, I mean both from a philosophical point of view and a design point of view, um, philosophically, the values that we're looking at with artificial life, where is that going? Um, what are some theories there? Who are the theoreticians? Uh, what are they addressing? How are they building a theory of aesthetics for artificial life? And also, as a um, paralleling that, or as a, an aspect of that, perhaps, I'm not sure at this point, but take a look at the perceptions of artificial life as this Evo grid is developing, and if it's a, a based on complexity and um, uh, synchronicity, or a symbiosis is a better term to use here, then um, what are the um, the perceptions um, within that within this grid that we can look at? Meaning perceptions not from a sensorial mix uh, from human life, but a life all life form has certain amount of something going on, whether it's an algorithm or a force or a proton or neutron, whether it's the universe or um, the life forms that we take on as animals, there's um, a behavior and a perception that develops. I would like to know more about the perception of artificial life and how the evolved grid is, is, looks at that or addresses the element of perception from, again, all life forms, not just biological life, and um, the aesthetics from the philosophical and theoretical point of view. So they're, they're both very good points. I think with regards to your first point, um, the quality of life of, of artificial life um, practitioners and developers is certainly um, not necessarily that it didn't exist prior to my editorial duties, but certainly I've put it up as being a central theme with regards to uh, the biota community, and I think that's critical. I mean, the, the nature of the correspondence I have privately with a number of folks in the community associated with their quality of life and the issues relating to that um, really motivates my own thinking um, in, in describing the situation to you. With regards to your point on perception, this is also something that came through. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Dick Gordon um, and his, his work in the community, but... Um, as a kind of senior embryologist, his, his background is very much with regards to the emergence of perception, and it's something which he has certainly staked a relatively high claim on with regards to the Evo grid specifically, that this component both with kind of external perception and also perceptions within is the only way um, that life can be actually described in any meaningful way. Um, but I think, you know, that they're both very valid points, which the... Um, community, even in, in small ways currently, is, is thinking about. So, Natasha, I'd like to, to thank you for the uh, for the chance to chat with you this evening. And as I said, um, you know, we, we have a, a regular discussion on Biota Live, which you're uh, more than welcome to participate in. And I think particularly as the uh, as the linking points from our, our kind of collective communities come together, it would be wonderful to have you as a kind of ambassador um, for the biota community in your own uh, community with regards to the extension of life because this is certainly something that comes through the, the discourse in the biota community on occasion. Well, thank you. I am delighted. 
I look forward to more exchange and um, collaborative thinking and discourse on these topics and many more. We certainly traveled around time and through time in this short discussion, but I think it was a, a fun journey. I know I enjoyed it, and now I feel like we could start all over again. Sometimes you, by the end of a conversation, you realize that you could just you're ready to lift off again and and start digging deeper and and uh, looking further and Certainly. underneath concepts and pulling things apart. That's the whole nature of the space live, and also the the visions of the Evo Grid discussion is exactly that. That one conversation ends and it spawns five different conversations in the future. <laughs> well, I absolutely love it. I love it. And thank you so much, Tom, for having me. And I hope to be on again. And and maybe one time we could pick one topic and delve into that deeply since you're such a deep thinker and you're so much fun to talk to, uh, such rich topics. That would be kind of uh, exciting, I think. Well, I'm just a monkey in a simulation. So that's, that's what I'll say today. <laughs> thank you very much for the chance to chat with oh, you this evening, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.